This episode of New Politics was recorded on the 17th of September, 2021, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Policies Podcast. In this episode, the Labor Party parachuting politicians into areas where they're not wanted. The New South Wales Premier cancels her media appearances but then decides on an encore performance. Nuclear submarines and political torpedoes. And the blind leading the blind. How ethical is Christian Porter's blind trust? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, financial advisor dealing in blind trusts. Thanks to all those new Patreon subscribers. The number of supporters continues to grow, so thank you very much to everyone that's signing up. This week we had a short mini podcast of Scott Morrison and what he did or what he didn't do during his time at Tourism Australia all the way back in 2006. There's been a few questions about this issue, so we will provide the answers to this. You can find the details at our website, newpolitics.com.au. You can sign up there and it's a very good way to support independent journalism. There was big news during the week when Christina Keneally announced she was going to seek pre-selection in the seat of Fowler at the next federal election. That's a seat in southwest Sydney. It's one of the most ethnically diverse parts of Australia. And the reason why this has all come about is that Chris Hayes, the current member for Fowler, is retiring at the next election. The only problem with this is that someone else was going to be pre-selected for the seat. To Lee, she's a young community representative. She's active in the migrant communities of southwest Sydney. She's a lawyer and she seems like a very, very impressive candidate. All of this just doesn't seem to be a great decision by Labor. And putting in a high profile candidate into a safe seat doesn't increase its overall election chances. But Labor, like all political parties, is a political beast that takes what it must have. And it's likely that Christina Keneally will be pre-selected and become the next member for the seat of Fowler. Is it okay for local pre-selections to be overridden in this way? Or is it just another way for political parties to try and put in their best candidates? It is a vexed issue, of course. You want the absolute best people, not just for Australia, but for the community. Now, Christina Keneally has a very impressive resume on paper. She was Premier of New South Wales and Cabinet Minister and has been a Labor member for many years. She fell in love with Australia too. She came from outside the United States, but has made a career giving back to Australia in many ways. Now, when you know some of the background of this too, it's a bit like Matthias Corwin. You read his CV, it looks very impressive. You see what he did and some of that gloss is taken off. Christina Keneally took over Labor at a very low point in its history, which we may not be out of yet. But it was a party run by the Terrigal faction in New South Wales, a bunch of corrupt members who tried to carve up the state for themselves. Because they were Labor members, they weren't really able to get away with this. Christina was put in after Nathan Rees. 
What both tried to do was clean the party up somewhat, but it's in a highly factional party such as Labour, it's very hard to clean up because the numbers can work against you, particularly if the factions and the powerful factions have been taken over by that type of corruption. I'm not at all suggesting that Christina Keneally was personally corrupt. I think, if anything, not being corrupt probably harmed her chances of longevity in the job. The upshot of all this is that she wasn't a terribly popular premier. And New South Wales press does have a long memory, well, a selectively long memory of this stuff. She did try and clean things up, as did Nathan Rees, and it cost both of them their jobs, and both didn't have very long tenures as premier. And of course, her legacy, fairly or unfairly, and I tend towards unfairly, is presiding over one of the most corrupt Labour governments in the state's history. You know, certainly when you're in charge, you might get the praise for everything, but you'll definitely get the blame for everything. Well, this has got factional deal written all over it. Keneally is currently a casual appointment to the Senate. This is after Sam Dastyari resigned a few years ago. But because of the factional interplay and the factional politics that goes on, she'll probably end up on number three on the Senate ballot at the next election if she did want to remain as a senator because Deb O'Neill, she's got the support of the Miscellaneous Workers Union. She's number one on the ticket. Number two has been taken up by Jenny McAllister. If Christina Keneally did run as a senator at number three, well, she just wouldn't get in. So that's the reason why she's moved over to the seat of Fowler. Now, I did look this up. There's actually a special Fowler rule within the Labor Party handbook as well, and that's rule N45, if anyone wants to look it up. It's a little bit like a play field of the New South Wales factions, and it's like the break the glass in case of emergency where they can put in whoever they like within the seat of Fowler to get rid of a factional problem. And that's exactly what's going on here. So it's obvious that the Labor Party wants to keep Christina Keneally in Parliament, but they can't get her through as a senator. So this is the next best option for them. And she's been a fine performer too. She's uh, seemingly been diligent. As far as we can tell, she uh, has held the government to account. She's one of those group of powerful women in the Labor Party who are in many ways the strength of the Labor Party. Penny Wong springs to mind. Tanya Plibersek springs to mind. Christina Keneally is certainly a part of that. Christina Keneally will end up in a seat that she's not really wanted in. She's got no relationship with that community. She lives 45 kilometres away on Scotland Island. And for those of you who are not familiar with Sydney, that's in the exclusive northern beaches of Sydney. And... There are other seats which would be more suitable for someone like Christina Keneally. The seat of Reid, for example, which is where I am in the inner west, that's winnable. Joel Fitzgibbons, he's retiring at the next election. That's in the Newcastle region. That would make as much sense as Christina Keneally going to Fowler. A few people have actually suggested that maybe she should go for the seat of Grandler. That's Anthony Albanese's seat. The other factor is that Chris Hayes, he's the current member for Fowler. He's done pretty much nothing in politics. He's always been a backbencher. He's been a bit of a time waster. 17 years in politics, including 11 as the member for Fowler. He didn't make much noise about the lack of multicultural representation for South West Sydney for all of that time. So why would he making a lot of noise and mischief about it right now? He should have stepped aside some time ago if he was worried about lack of multicultural representation for South West Sydney. It was an odd claim to make. I think the Labor Party is at its best when it does embrace its diversity. It doesn't have a great history on diversity till 1972 when, of course, Whitlam and Don Dunstan and Al Grasby push for... It's the 69 Labor Conference where the, the three of them 
get Labor to change its mind on what becomes multiculturalism and, of course, on the election of the Whitlam government in 1972, multiculturalism was introduced as a policy to great success. Before I say anything else, it's to great success, though it was not without its critics. Australia is better as a multicultural country, and there's a sense in which it always was. Chinese immigration started here in the 1830s. The first fleet venerated by our Prime Minister was not the uh, Anglo show of strength that some like to present it as, but it had something like 83 nationalities on it. Maltese, French, Americans, Irish, Welsh, Scottish, Italians, Russians, etc. But Labour is at its best when it embraces its legacy. I think. And I know, that too, that the Liberal supporters will argue that multiculturalism had been an unofficial policy from 1966 with Hubert Oppenheimer as Minister for Immigration, who started loosening a lot of the procedures to allow immigration. Moving back, it was the Chifley government who allowed Eastern Europeans in and Mediterranean, Italians, Greeks, Polish people, Czechoslovakians, etc., etc., So again, when Labor embraces its multicultural legacy, it's stronger. And we've also been asked, well, how much work does the local federal member of parliament actually do for their community anyway? So they are an important part of the community, but the reason why they've brought up these questions is that the member for Reid, again, that's where I'm located in the inner west, the local member is virtually invisible. The member for Banks, David Coleman, he was actually sick and absent from parliament for almost two years. The member for Dawson up in Queensland, George Christensen, he was actually overseas for about a third of the term between 2016 and 2019. So how critical are these federal MPs in the normal functioning of the community anyway? Don Chip, in his memoirs, The Third Man, goes through a typical week of an MP, but it's sitting in Parliament dealing with what the English call the surgeries, uh, local issues, cabinet meetings, meetings with public services. It's along those lines from Monday to Friday. And the day started at about six with reading all the newspapers and getting briefed and got to the office about eight and you get home about 10 at night. Then he said Saturdays were local community events for your seat, opening the shopping centres, going to the school fates, rotary meetings, blah, blah, blah. And then he said Sundays was barbecues at the party members place. So it was a seven day a week job for him. And I'm, and I'm sure that local members listening would say, yes, done properly. That's what we do along those lines, pretty close. But there are, particularly in the major parties, a group of people who don't like to do the work and who are there really to just give the numbers. So when a vote is on, they turn up, they raise their hand and they go home. Some of these seem to have made it through to cabinet. But there's a reason that a nationally prominent person like George Christensen hasn't got into a Barnaby Joyce cabinet. Could you imagine how low the standards could be? There's been a whole range of other people that have been parachuted into particular seats around New South Wales and across Australia. But in New South Wales, there's been Jihad Dib and Jody McKay. That's at state politics. Peter Garrett was also parachuted into his seat in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. There's also Warren Mundine as well that was on the south coast of New South Wales. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But it always causes problems that have to be worked out at a local level. The other factor is that we have to remember that 
the person with perhaps the biggest parachute ever in politics was Scott Morrison, where he was defeated in the pre-selection for the seat of Cook in 2006, and he lost the pre-selection in a fair vote. His opponent, Michael Tauk, won 82 votes, and Morrison received only eight votes. So that's less than 10% of the overall pre-selection vote. He lost, and then he went off to News Corporation and got the Daily Telegraph to run a smear campaign against Michael Tauk, accusing him of being a liar, of a cheat, and implying that he was a pedophile. And that decision was overturned, and Morrison was installed as the candidate. So that's how Scott Morrison got into Parliament. And it wasn't so much that he was parachuted into the seat of Cook. He had the assistance of News Corporation. So it's almost like he was chauffeur-driven there by Rupert Murdoch in a limousine. And... I don't know if Michael Tauk would have been better, but he couldn't have been any worse. Morrison presented Tauk as a far-right candidate. Morrison presented himself as a moderate, which is something that he's clearly not. It seemed to me that it was a chance for the Liberal Party to have someone of a non-English or non-Anglo background in an area that has a poor reputation and before you lovely people of the South say, it's not everyone, I know it's not everyone, but it, it does have a reputation outside of its area of not being terribly friendly to people of non-Anglo backgrounds. And only 12 months before, or probably less, you'd had the Cronulla riots. So it was a chance for the Liberal Party to say, look, we're moving past this nonsense. But they put in pale, stale, male Morrison, who does not distinguish in the role. This is an issue that applies to all parties. People out there are thinking, oh, you know, the Labor Party parachuting external candidates into Parliament. It's not just the Labor Party. This applies to all political parties. But having said that, Parliament does need to be reflective of the community. And Labor is selecting someone who is not part of that community. And they've bypassed a very good opportunity to broaden the diversity of Parliament by not pre-selecting someone of a Vietnamese background. And these are all the values that Labor subscribes to but it seems like it's not quite prepared to put that into practice. And also, we have to look at the ramifications of all of this. Some people have said, oh, people won't vote for Labor because of this. And then you point out, well, actually, it's a safe Labor seat. Then they say, oh, well, they won't vote for Labor in other seats because of this. And I don't think the people voting in Melbourne will choose not to vote for Labor because of this. I don't think that's the case. This will all blow over pretty quickly. Tuli will probably be given something else by Labor at some point in the future. This will cause problems. It's in the media right now. But by the time of the next election, this will all be forgotten about. I think that's right. And generally, these things blow over. And you either have her lose the seat, which is highly unlikely, next election, and you just never know. A community-based independent might be able to do the 14% swing. Highly, highly unlikely, but weirder things have happened. The other thing, too, is that premiers tend not to do terribly well at a federal level. We've had precisely two premiers make it to the role of Prime Minister, George Reid in 1903-104, Joe Lyons from 1931 to 39. Many other premiers have gone in. John Fay was finance minister, so he did very well, but his health beat him. He got lung cancer, which is no good. Carmen Lawrence had gone in but was defeated by a scandal she'd had as premier. Other premiers skirt the line of going. Joe Bjocky Peterson tried and failed absolutely. Once he moved out of the gerrymandered seat of Queensland, people saw him for what he was, and then the Royal Commission hit, and etc., etc. So... Her success is not guaranteed. 
in her favour is that she wasn't Premier for very long, and usually longer serving Premiers are exhausted by the time they finish running the state, and so they're less effective. Being Premier of the state does not guarantee success at a federal level. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible, or find us at newpolitics.com.au, and you can now follow us at Patreon. Up next, a disappearing New South Wales Premier decides to return for an encore performance. New South Wales has reached the first dose vaccination rate of 80% for its population over the age of 16. And that's the headline figure that the New South Wales government wants to keep pushing. Even though daily new case numbers are still very high, 1,284 today and 12 deaths. And they also want to push the community into accepting the message of living with COVID, which is better than the alternative message, which would be, in my opinion, accepting the mistakes and incompetence and inaction of the New South Wales Premier who caused the problem in the first place. But that message, even though it's a lot more accurate, is probably a little bit too long. As part of the living with COVID message the New South Wales government is pushing, the New South Wales Premier, Gladys Berejiklian, she decided to cancel all future 11 o'clock media conferences. And this is despite record numbers of COVID cases, an increase in casualty rates and the expectation that the worst is yet to come in Sydney. The media conference that she gave last Sunday was announced as the final event that the New South Wales government would be doing. And they were all dressed up in their Sunday best, almost like the final night of a stage show. But then, totally unexpectedly, Berejiklian then appeared on the Monday morning to make a big announcement, even though there was nothing big to announce, just one day after she cancelled the media conferences. Now, she said that she was always due to appear on the Monday, even though she said the opposite just the day before. Was it a mistake to cancel the media conferences in the first place? Was she backtracking or is there something else that's going on here? One thing that we've always said is that as poor as they've been at least she always fronted at least there was usually her she started having saturdays off we noticed and brad hazard would have sundays off and kerry chant had days off and that's probably not worth going into provided everybody's healthy and capable and able to perform on other days having days off from the constant isn't so bad daniel andrews of course didn't miss a day for months But we're all different. We all need different levels of refresh. So even harsh critics like ourselves couldn't take away from the fact that they were giving a message. Now we kicked into the message. And that's okay too. That's our job to pick apart the message and see if it's any good. And and we found that the message often wasn't very good. When good things happened, of course, we acknowledged that. When she stopped it, it was clear to some people that she was under pressure because one numbers were getting worse they weren't getting better the vaccination 
hadn't worked. The week lockdown she'd bought in hadn't worked. There was still too much movement around. Numbers seemed to have stabilised, but they were going up. And the last day was a record, wasn't it? 1,600 on a Sunday, which is hugely unusual. What happens then, of course, is Chris Minns, the state Labor leader, calls a press conference for 11 o'clock on Monday. And then suddenly Gladys realises, oh, there's something else I have to tell you. So I've said this before, we're governed by children. They couldn't even manufacture something worth announcing. Of course, there's a lot going on. Well, the other factor is that these media conferences were cancelled initially because the New South Wales government wants to normalise this process of COVID, the entire living with COVID message that they keep putting out. And if you're delivering a media conference every day at 11 o'clock, announcing high case numbers and a daily death toll as well, well, that's giving the situation a lot more gravity than the New South Wales government wanted to give. And you can't have this double situation where high case numbers are being announced every single day and you're trying to push forward this message of, oh, well, we're just all have to live with COVID. So there's a contradiction there. Politically, we can see that's why Gladys Berejiklian decided to cancel those media conferences, which are now back on anyway. So it just paints a very confusing picture anyway. Towards the end of last week, there were those questions coming in from journalists about the ICAC corruption as well. So it seems like there was a twofold process going on. The media conferences were not just being used to ask questions about coronavirus and COVID cases and those sort of issues. They were an opportunity for journalists to start asking questions about other issues, corruption, mismanagement of funding as well. So more and more questions were being asked about corruption. The New South Wales government wanted to normalise this whole idea of living with COVID. What do you do? You get rid of your 11 o'clock media conferences. But then she uncancelled her cancellation. And then she was back on the media conferences the, the day after. So media stunt after media stunt. There wasn't any new messaging coming through. And I guess it was just politics as normal in New South Wales. Yeah, it's a state government that really needed to be excellent. And I know that we're probably having a lot of people from South Australia and Western Australia and Victoria turn off from Queensland. Stay with us for a bit. We're getting back to federal in a second. But also, if New South Wales isn't working properly, it affects the rest of the country. I doubt that anybody from New South Wales will be able to go into Western Australia for at least the next 12 months. This will have an effect on business and on trade and on tourism and on art and culture and and, and families. I don't see Queensland opening its borders for months and months. Victoria is not going to. And New South Wales will be essentially a hermit state, unable to do what it does best, which is be the the heart and lungs of the country. Melbourne's the only other city that can really, whether it has the capacity to do that, because it has its own role too nationally, whether it can take on both roles or not, either it can't, which is bad for Melbourne and Victoria, or it can, which is bad for New South Wales. Because once they've got those roles running, New South Wales won't be able to take them back very easily. And then suddenly you go from a major world city to a middling, third-tier, crumbling state of little importance. And we, I think we also have to explore that living with COVID message. It's not just coming from the New South Wales government. It's also the federal government that's been pushing this message. And along with that, they've also been pushing the message that, well, COVID will just eventually be like the flu, as if influenza isn't bad in itself. And most people, when they do say, well, I've been unwell, just recovering from 
from the flu. They haven't actually had the flu. They've just had a very bad cold and other related malaise. So influenza is quite a serious illness as well. But COVID is far more insidious than the flu. In 2019, and that was the last flu season because the social distancing and restrictions have got flu cases almost down to zero with no deaths at all so far in 2021. But just as a comparison, in 2019, there were 486 deaths from the flu and 214,000 cases recorded. During this pandemic, there's been over 1,000 deaths uh, since it all commenced. That's over 18 months and 55,000 cases. So the annual death rate for COVID is roughly the same as the flu. The case numbers are around 10% of the flu, but we do have to remember that many parts of Australia have been in extended lockdown during this time. COVID is far more contagious. There are long-term issues and there are other issues about COVID that we just don't know about yet. So what? I'm not suggesting that lockdown should continue forever, but it just seems that the New South Wales government and the federal government, they're prepping the public by doing things such as not wanting to front up to media conferences, downplaying the effects of COVID, trying to normalise COVID by suggesting that it's just like the flu, then trying to implement a rapid opening up without safeguards. And that's a process which could have disastrous consequences for the community. Canada, the province of Alberta, tried the living with COVID and they admitted today that it was a disaster and have called a state of emergency and are trying to now get COVID back down to, if not zero, then manageable. And again, we've been saying since this started, based on what we've read from epidemiologists, that the only way to beat it is to get it to zero. And you starve it out. Social distancing, lockdown, short lockdowns, masks, reduction of travel, vaccinations, hand washing. It's the combination of all of them. And yes, it's hard. Any Victorian will tell you it's extremely hard, but it's worth it. And the irresponsible approach of the federal and state New South Wales state government has stretched this out probably six to eight months longer than it needed to be stretched out. And we're not finished yet. Now, most pandemics historically last about three years, but the last year, there's a definite turn down and you you see the numbers dwindle to nothing or next to nothing. Unless things start to improve in the next month or so, this may not happen. And again, for industries that just cannot work during a pandemic, it's devastating. You can't move from one industry to another that easily. And a lot of industries anyway aren't opening up to allow for new workers. So we're in a real bind here. And Gladys needs to stop taking advice from experts who aren't health experts. Well, the good news is that the curfews have ended in the local government areas of concern, and that includes the areas where you and I reside. And it was almost like the Battle of Stalingrad for a little while, but that's all ended, thankfully. These curfews have ended, even though the numbers keep going up. There might be medical advice, which we haven't seen, that supports this idea, but it does seem a little bit counterintuitive. The rate in New South Wales for double doses is currently 50%, and they'll reach that magical figure that they keep going on about of 80%, possibly towards the end of November. But this whole idea of having picnics or reducing curfews or whatever the case might be, it's... To me, it seems to be offering a false hope and it's possibly not the right balance at this stage, but you do have to offer the community hope. We don't want to be in a lockdown forever, but my main issue is that it has to be all be done very safely and as safely as possible. Yeah, false hope does no good to anybody. And the whole 80% is 
80% of eligible, which only works out to 56%. No virologist or epidemiologist thinks 56% is anywhere near enough. Most are saying 90%. There are a few who said with careful management, you know, if the, if the odds are in your favour, 80% might work, but 90% is the safer number. The English model, which has been a disaster, the Swedish model, which has been a disaster, the um, half of America, the pre-Biden model, we can call it, has been a disaster. Thousands of lives lost pointlessly. Thousands more lives impacted for weeks and even months with long COVID pointlessly to enrich a few people, it seems, and maybe not even that. We need a complete clean out of New South Wales Parliament and a total restructure of how it works, and federal parliament for that matter. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible, or find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now follow us at Patreon. A $90 billion deal with France to build 12 diesel-powered submarines has been scrapped and replaced with a plan to build nuclear-powered submarines through a new tripartite deal with the UK and the US. And that's got the funny acronym of AUKUS or AUKUS, depending on which way you want to pronounce it. The deal with the French company, the Naval Group, it was only signed in 2016, that was just five years ago. $2.5 billion worth of work has been completed and paid for so far, and it will cost between $355 and $400 million to sever the contract. And that's money just down the drain. It's not like you can try and sell submarine blueprints on eBay and hope for the best or make an international exchange for Pfizer vaccines. That work has been completed and has been wasted. So that's almost $3 billion down the drain that could have been used for something else. Now, one reason that has been given for scuppering the French deal and going for this new UK-US model is that nuclear power submarines are quieter and undetectable. Now, I've watched enough episodes of Dust Boot to know that a quiet submarine is a successful submarine, but maybe they should have thought about this five years ago. And the big message has been that the world is no longer a secure place. There are different security requirements in a more dangerous world. And if you haven't been listening, that's code for China. So aside from all of these issues, this has got all the hallmarks of yet another management disaster by the current federal government. It probably said it all when President Biden clearly forgot Scott Morrison's name. Now, I doubt he would have forgotten John Howard's name. I doubt he would have forgotten Paul Keating's name, Kevin Rudd or Julia Gillard. I even think he'd have remembered Tony Abbott and Malcolm Turnbull's name. But it shows how little impression Scott Morrison makes on these things. Now, this deal had probably been going since Tony Abbott or even before. And a lot of people would have been involved. It's not a Scott Morrison triumph by any standard. He was likely involved, at least being briefed about what was going on, but various foreign ministers, but also public servants, are the ones who sit down and hammer this stuff out. It's not a terribly good deal for Australia. We get the nuclear submarines in 2040. 
Now, I'll be about oh, 65 then, so maybe a little bit older. And then there's eight of them. And this is supposed to stand up to the might of the Chinese Navy. We know that if in the case of a world conflict in 2041, we'll get an extra five seconds to run into our bunker before they're gone. Of course, the thing that all prime ministers do, or most prime ministers do, you can look like a strong leader and that you're thinking and that you're at the cutting edge of technology, so we'll pour money into military. But the implications of this one don't take a lot of thought to realize just how bad it is. What we haven't mentioned yet, too, is that that French deal was meant to provide all these jobs to South Australia. It didn't. It's a little bit like the Adani mine in Queensland. People who agree with it will say, oh, look at all the jobs. But when you actually look at the analysis, it's 150 temporary jobs and about 10 permanent jobs, maybe, provided they don't move those jobs offshore. Well, there's also been quite a lot of misrepresentation about the deal from 2016. Scott Morrison claimed that Australia didn't actually have submarine producing capabilities and that was offered as an excuse for signing the French deal in 2016. And there would have been some local manufacturing in Adelaide based on that French deal. But five years later, we've somehow found the ability to produce a far more sophisticated submarine as well. Morrison also announced that the submarines would substantially be built or assembled in Adelaide, but there are other reports that are indicating that they'll be fully manufactured and built in the United States. There's quite a lot of misinformation being peddled out here. There's also those questions about the value of this submarine project as well. You did mention that there'll be eight submarines to come out of this that probably cost $100 billion. Australia currently has six Collins class submarines. So you're wondering, well, why do we need eight? Why do we need 12? And some military experts have also been suggesting that remote cluster vessels or underwater drones, they'd actually be more valuable than large submarines that cost an absolute fortune. There are disputes within the military field as to whether this is valuable or not. And it brings us back to that original question. What is this all about? Is this a wedge against Labor that Morrison can use at the next election? The Labor Party does have non-proliferation issues with anything to do with nuclear energy, whether it's nuclear powered or the production of nuclear energy or nuclear warfare. The port of Fremantle doesn't actually accept nuclear vessels. Uh, New Zealand and several Pacific Islands also don't accept the entry of nuclear powered vessels. So there's quite a few issues that are going on here. It may not have anything to do with submarines at all. I think it's the Australia that wants to be part of white English-speaking zone of influence. We had it with the empire, and then the empire morphs into the Commonwealth sort of slowly and almost imperceptibly. Now, New Zealand has been nuclear-free since... I think, the Longy government, and each New Zealand government has kept that, even the conservative ones. Now, Paul Keating, I think, is the first prime minister to really make overt noises towards that the world has changed and that we don't talk of the Far East. It's really the near north to us. We have to get on with Indonesia and with China and with Japan and, and with all these countries. We can't depend on America on the other side of the Pacific to help us in the case of a problem. And in fact, we can stand up as adults and defend our own interests. And I don't mean militarily either. I mean trade and, and diplomacy and all the things that countries do and be seen as one of the table. It, to me, seems a bit of a retrograde movement for Australia to be a clearly a third partner. Eight submarines in 18 years is not a great deal. 
and it doesn't seem to me to be forward thinking. The other thing I will add is that I don't think we should sever ties with the United States and England. We have a lot of things in common with them. They are close allies, etc., etc. It's, again, not a schoolyard where you can't be friends with the kids on the other side of the playground because you're friends with the kids on this side of the playground. We can represent our interests and be an ally to China. We can represent our interests and be an ally to Korea and to Japan and to Thailand and to Indonesia and to all of them. I won't go through all of them because I will forget someone (laughs) and I don't want to, but we can do that. Yet there is this inability or refusal to at the federal government level and it's holding us back and when we get an adult government I don't know what we're going to do. Well all of this might just be a little bit of a side issue but the issue is that it's still a hundred billion dollars worth of funding for this particular project and eight submarines whether it's eight or six or ten who who knows what that's going to be but it's still a hundred billion dollars worth of funding. But the Liberal National Government, they've botched the National Broadband Network, they've mismanaged climate change, mismanaged bushfires, mismanaged the vaccination rollout, mismanaged quarantine, and now they've mismanaged the French submarine deal. They've got a history of mismanaging projects and mismanaging the future. And my feeling is that this submarine deal is not going to be very much different to all of that. I struggle to see any concrete achievement from the last three governments that's not compromised. Sure, they eventually coughed out a, an NBN that was kind of better than ADSL, but not as good as it could have been. They allowed gay marriage through a plebiscite that they tried to rig to lose and couldn't even do that. They've signed this deal. Now, the other thing is that contract law or tort law is probably the most rigid of all the laws that don't come out of a religious bent. And by that, I mean things like don't murder, don't steal. Contract law is very much a secular law designed as a practicality to make sure that things could be transacted. Now, contracts can be broken, and they are all the time, but there's only so many you can break before people stop trusting you. And a government needs, at its very basic level, to be able to be trusted, not only by its citizens, but by other countries around the world. And international diplomacy is full of mistrust. So for Australia to break this deal with France will be analysed very deeply in France and there will be repercussions. I think we can forget about a free trade deal with France. I think we can forget about cheaper commodities from France for a very long time. It will take at least one change of government and more likely two or three with totally different people at the front to be able to sort this out and get things out of France again. And to cozy up to the United States and England like that is highly problematic and should have been thought through a little bit more. Christian Porter is in trouble again, this time for using a blind trust for his legal costs in the defamation case against the ABC, which didn't actually proceed to trial. And that relates to allegations that he raped a woman in 1988. Now, we've got to be clear about this. These are claims that he has denied strenuously. But there are suggestions that his legal costs are around $600,000. 
Now, I've not heard of this type of arrangement before, a blind trust for legal costs. It is quite common for US politicians with large assets to put the management of their assets into a blind trust. And the idea is that they can't influence their assets while they hold office. And it's a way of maintaining some sort of integrity within politics, even though there are ways around this process. It's not clear why Christian Porter would do this. He could easily just say, here's my bank account, just send some money. It's a little bit like what we do on the New Politics podcast. We ask for support. The details are on our website and it's all above board. Now, David, I didn't slip in a plug there or do a product placement for no reason. It's just there to provide an example, of course. If people choose to do that, though, who are we to argue? Well, that is exactly (laughs) the case. But who set up this blind trust and why do they do that? Are they moving around all the legal circles in Perth and asking for donations? Is it possibly going to be used for other purposes, such as funding Christian Porter's re-election campaign at the next federal election? Funds that are raised for legal costs, such as the recent defamation case of Jordan Shanks against John Barillaro in New South Wales, and this is generally the practice for all legal firms, the money goes into a trust fund. It's all clear, it's above board, and funds are withdrawn as required as the legal case proceeds. But in this blind trust for Christian Porter, there's no indication how it's going to be used or who has contributed to his legal costs. It all just sounds a little bit too dodgy. In the United States, famously, Jimmy Carter sold the peanut farm that his family had held for generations. It was a tiny farm, but he was he was worried that people might think that if he had to make a decision in favour or against peanut farming, which is possible in the the states, trade deals go down. He couldn't be seen to be favouring even accidentally one set of agriculture over another. Donald Trump, of course, didn't. He he kept his business interests going, claiming that it was his family, all of whom were in his cabinet, uh, or if not in his cabinet, working closely with him as advisors. Anyway, Lex Luthor, when he becomes president in the Superman comics, puts everything into a blind trust, pointing, and people pointed out that Lex Luthor is more ethical than Donald Trump. (laughs) Blind trusts are not really a a thing in Australia, and there has been quite a lot of research about the use of blind trusts for politicians in Australia, and the research just points out, well, this is a big problem for transparency in Australia. It's a big problem for the democratic processes. If people are contributing money for political purposes, well, we do need to know who they are and and the reasons behind that. Now, this is slightly different where Christian Porter is using a blind trust to fund his legal case, which it's no longer a case. It's already over. He's using it to pay for his legal costs. And the idea of the blind trust is that you're never meant to know who it is. But what's to stop Porter telling potential donors, well, we know the name of the trust. It's called the Legal Services Trust. What's to stop Christian Porter from saying, oh, just make contact with Legal Services Trust and they'll sort it out for you. So Christian Porter says that he doesn't know who set up this trust or why or who asked for it. You know, is that believable? Probably not. And it is a problem for the democratic processes. It's astonishing that Christian Porter thought that this would all be okay. Why not just set up a normal trust account, which is what legal firms traditionally do? Why the secrecy for all of this? Sirkan Ozturk of True Crime Weekly has started looking for who who is part of this trust. I have heard on the grapevine that it is one prominent West Australian businessman. So we'll, we'll be watching this case with interest to see what happens. Under normal circumstances, we know that Christian Porter would not survive this. 
but we're not under normal circumstances and they don't want to force a by-election before the election. And he got pre-selection for the seat anyway. I don't think the Prime Minister wants those issues, that adults have to deal with issues. We've been asked a couple of questions about this. Well, why doesn't Christian Porter just resign? He's doing the wrong thing. But it's not up to Christian Porter. He can do pretty much whatever he wants. It's not up to him. It's up to the Prime Minister of the day to sack a minister. And it's all in the hands of Scott Morrison. So if Scott Morrison believes that Christian Porter is going to be an ongoing problem for him in the lead up to the next election, which is due to be called any time between now and May 2022. If he decides that Christian Porter is a liability, he'll get rid of him. But it's not up to Christian Porter. It's not up to the law. Setting up a blind trust or any sort of trust is a legal process. Mm. That's not, There's nothing illegal about it. But whether Christian Porter survives politically, it's not up to him. It's up to Scott Morrison. He's the one that makes the final decision about this. Yeah, and the fact that he had to go and get advice was, I think, very telling. It's clearly that he's trying to get advice to make the best of this, because I think even John Howard, who protected his ministers, wouldn't have allowed this. I don't know how a government operates without legitimacy, but we have one. Well, I guess the other point is that Christian Porter should have probably been sacked by Scott Morrison Mm. some time ago when all of these allegations first started appearing about 12 months ago. This might end up being the final straw. As I said before, there's nothing illegal about setting up a blind trust, but this could be the final straw. Christian Porter has been trouble for the past 12 months. A lot of people might argue that he's been trouble for much longer than that, but this could be the straw that breaks the camel's back. We'll know by next week, I think. I think it. I think this will come to a head very quickly. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech, or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in, and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.